So the theme tonight is questions and answers. Specifically, don't just answer the question, question the answers. So that's what I'll talk about, questioning the answers. We want answers. We humans are very curious creatures. And we are generating questions all the time, and we want them answered. Thank you very much. That's the way we are. Our culture tells us to do this. You know, we've come through the Age of Enlightenment. That happened about 500 years ago or so. And it shifted the paradigm from awe to answers. So before, people had a lot of awe about the world. And they looked for explanations. But the Enlightenment sort of told us, no, everything is knowable if we want to know it. We just have to use the scientific method and we'll find the answers. So awe and wonder became temporary states that could be overcome by knowledge. So we kind of we lost our, our wonder. We just want to go right to the answers. You know, we, we sort of feel like if, if you can't prove it, it isn't true. And I will prove to you what is true. So our education also really uh, tells us to seek answers. When we go to school, we tend to memorize a lot of stuff. And then we regurgitate it back on a test. And um, then we're validated in that by getting a grade. If we regurgitate really well, we're validated with a high grade. And if we regurgitate really well, we become the valedictorian, right? The one who's most validated. So then we go on to college and we learn some kind of a hard skill. So then we can trade it for hard cash. And God forbid we be one of the slow students the ones that go to special education. Now, that just doesn't fit our paradigm. We want to get right to the answers. Our spiritual traditions, they do the same thing. They tell us to look for answers. I come to a spiritual tradition or a teacher with a deep question, and I want their answer. You know, I, want, I want to know what's going to happen after I die. Tell me. I want to know what gives my life meaning. Tell me what gives my life meaning. Why am I here? Tell me. We're really ashamed anytime we say, I don't know. You know, just, just say that to yourself for a minute. Imagine saying that out loud in, in public. I don't know. Can you feel that little sense of constriction in your body that's sort of shameful? I don't know. But I'll find out and get back to you by Thursday. Right? Yeah, it's shameful to not know in our culture. So in the middle of this, here comes Zen. And Zen doesn't give answers. There's no Bible. And there's no sutra that we can refer to as the authoritative word of the Buddha. You know, this is the answer. We just don't have that. And, you know, this kind of makes it hard for us to be proper evangelists. 
You know, we, when people come looking for answers to a spiritual tradition and we don't have any, well, ooh. I remember a, a friend of mine uh, became very interested in um, Mormonism and eventually converted to become a Mormon. And when I asked him about that, he told me, you know, the, one of the reasons that it really appeals to me is that no matter what question I have, I can go to my bishop and my bishop has the answer. Um, you know, we don't in Zen have answers to give people. So maybe that's why we don't grow like other religions do. We can't really evangelize and grow because what are we really offering people? Um, you know, our Zen practices, they, they ask a lot of us, but it's hard to make a case for what they return to us, at least initially. Um, you know, rather than, than being able to define what the eternal reward will be for, for practicing Zen, uh, Zen turns it around and asks, well, who is this self that wants this eternal reward? And how satisfying is that? No wonder there's not very many of us. Uh, my friend wouldn't have liked that answer. He, he found something better in the Mormon church. So Zen doesn't answer our questions. It questions our answers. Wherever we try and stand, Zen pulls the rug right out from under our feet. Whenever we're certain about something, Zen asks, are you sure? When we seek some kind of solid answer, Zen will reply to us with a paradox. So Zen always questions our answers. There's lots of stories about this in Zen, and one, one is one of my favorite ones, and I've mentioned this story before. Uh, there was a, a, a famous Zen teacher named Daishan in China in the 800s. And when he was a student, he was a, he was a very curious student, and he became an expert in the Diamond Sutra. And so he went all over everywhere, um, writing commentaries and sharing these commentaries with people and telling people what is the truth about the, Dar the Diamond Sutra. Um, so he had lots of answers, and he loved to tell everyone what he knew. Uh, so one night, his teacher, um, Long Tan, uh, was listening to Deshaun go on and on and on. And Deshaun was, I, can, I imagine, just pestering Long Tan late into the night, trying to convince him that study and understanding were necessary for the practice to progress. And I just imagine Long, Long Tan listening and listening and listening, and finally suggesting to Deshaun, maybe it's time for you to go to bed. So as, as Deshaun uh, was moving out of the, the master's room into the dark night, just as he got to the darkness, Long Tan offered Deshaun a lamp. And, and Deshaun took the lamp, and as he was stepping into the dark, Long Tan reached over and blew out the light. And in that moment, Deshaun was struck with insight. So it's, it's a great story. 
I can just I can just see this happening. What a, what a brilliant move by a long tan to, to for Deshaun. He knew he was primed. He knew he was primed and he just blew out his light like that. That's really great. So what did Deshaun see in that moment? What was it that struck him by insight? So there's a it's really great metaphor in this. Uh, you know, the room had been filled with this light of the teacher. And the, the teacher's light was illuminating Deshaun. But what good is someone else's light? Deshaun was about to step out into the darkness. Could he really take Deshaun's light with him? Could he really put it into this lamp and take it with him to light his way? No, he needed his own light. You can't take someone else's light with you. Someone else's light is going to abandon you when you need it most. You need your own light. So I think this is one of the things that Deshaun saw, that he needed his own light. He'd focused all his attention on the Diamond Sutra. But in that moment, Deshaun saw that the Diamond Sutra was someone else's insight. It wasn't his own. So he was stepping out into the darkness, into the human vulnerability that is essential to all of us. And he couldn't take the light of his teacher. He couldn't take the light of the Diamond Sutra with him. He couldn't memorize someone else's insight and use it out there. He needed to rely on his own open mind in the present moment to light his way. He needed to light the lamp for himself. So Deshaun was a very dramatic guy, apparently. And so the next morning, everyone came to the, to the, the meditation hall. And what does Deshaun do? He brings all of his Diamond Sutra commentaries that he's written, puts them in the middle of the meditation hall and sets fire to them. It doesn't say in the story what happened to the meditation hall. I, I, I think maybe it didn't burn down, but uh, he was quite, uh, quite a dramatic guy. And, and he went on to be a really important teacher uh, of, his, of his own right. There's several other stories about Deshaun that are really great. I can tell you sometime. But I have a question for you to hold. How are you resting in someone else's light? How are you resting in someone else's light? You know, and when you see that, you might begin to ask yourself too, what, what prevents you from lighting your own way? What is it that prevents you from lighting your own way? You may not get that dramatic moment like Deshaun got of the teacher blowing out the lamp just as he was stepping out into the darkness. But you can ask this question for yourself and maybe blow out the lamp that you're carrying yourself. So there was a, another 
Zen master, another great teacher named Hakuin in Japan in the 17th century. And Hakuin too has great stories about him. I just love some of Hakuin's stories. But one of the things that Hakuin used to describe this, this phenomenon of questioning the answers was a phrase, great doubt, great doubt. And he said, if we want great insight, we must first have great doubt. If we want great insight, we must first have great doubt. And when we talk about great doubt, it's great because it's not satisfied with superficial answers. It continues to look past the superficial to go deep and deeper and deeper still, as my friend Larry Ward likes to say. But this doubt isn't just kind of a fatalistic sense that we can't know what the truth is, so we should just give up. And there's a lot of that going around right now in our culture. You know, we, we've, we've got all this um, fake news and information silos, and some of us have become certain that there is some kind of truth, but we can't trust anyone to tell us what it is because everyone's got their agendas. And, and so we have this kind of cynical, fatalistic nihilism going on. But that belief that there's a truth, but we can't know what it is, is just another kind of knowing. It's not great doubt. It's actually some kind of epistemological gobbledygook. You know, it's, it's not very helpful. So we don't want to get stuck in that place of, of thinking that, that there's a truth, but we just can't get to it. That's not what great doubt really is. Great doubt, uh, it asks us to let go of the certainty that separates us. Let go of the certainty that separates us. So great doubt asks us to let go of the certainty that separates us from humility. To be humble, we have to doubt our belief. We have, to, we have to have some inkling that maybe what I think might not be true, and that gives us humility. So great doubt asks us to let go of the certainty that separates us from other people. When we are a self-satisfied blowhard, no one wants to be around us. When we're the one who knows the way it is, and I'm going to tell you, that separates us from other people. And great doubt asks us to let go of the certainty that separates us from compromise. When I think I have the truth and you don't, there is no way for us to meet in the middle. There is no way for us to have a discussion and for me to say, oh, I hadn't considered that, ah, and come to a compromise. 
So great doubt also asks us to let go of the certainty that separates us from wonder and awe. You know, when you look up into the sky and you see this immense number of stars, this enormous universe of which we are less than a tiny dust particle of, there is wonder and awe there because we don't know what's out there. We don't have certainty about that. And so we look out there and we say, wow, that's great doubt. That's great doubt. It might be different for an astronomer. You know, when an astronomer looks through her telescope, she does know what's out there to a large degree. And so she might not have that same experience of awe and wonder that we have. But she could be trapped in what we're usually trapped in is where she is seeing her ideas about that universe instead of seeing the universe. And great doubt asks us to humbly open our hearts and see things as they are, full of wonder and awe, full of possibilities that we may discover or may not discover. So this great doubt, it brings us back to the present moment because we can only really know what's here and now. We can only respond to what's here and now. And our knowing is usually about using the past to predict the future. All those things we memorized in school, you know, math equations, it's about knowing something about the past to predict the future, using that equation to predict it. But great doubt is about living and acting right here and right now. Daniel Kahneman is a Nobel Prize winning economist. And he wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And this book is really, really a great book. It sounds so dry to think, you know, think, oh, that sounds really great. But it's actually a very, very interesting book. It's about the human mind. And he, he talks about research that points to why our brains unconsciously project delusions rather than see things as they are. In, in other words, why we have no great doubt, why we don't question the answers. So what he describes in this, in this book is that when we learn something new or novel, we use our slow thinking. And it takes a lot of brain power and energy to, to use slow thinking, but it's required because we don't know anything about it. So remember back to the time years and years and years and years and years ago when you learned how to drive a car. So if you remember, you probably really had to pay attention to every single thing that you did. You know, where actually is the brake pedal? How far do I need to move my foot over there to get on that? How hard do I need to press down on it so we slow down but don't just come to a screeching stop? You know, you had to, you had to figure out every little bit of that car driving stuff. That's slow thinking. It takes a lot of energy. 
It's what we ask our kids to do all day long in school. No wonder they come home tired. But pretty soon, you've got it, right? And now when you get in the car, you can drive a long distance without hardly any conscious awareness at all. You ever had that experience when you get somewhere and you, and you don't really even hardly remember that driving there, but you were driving there? That's fast thinking. And that's what we do most of the time. Most of our, um, our, our thinking is fast thinking that's unconscious, not even available to our conscious mind. So this is actually a, a really helpful thing in, hum, in human development, because if you imagine the conditions under which the human mind developed out on the African savanna, the, the person who used fast thinking to immediately assess and react to a threat is the person who survived. So we developed a really great ability to have this kind of fast thinking. And fast thinking doesn't use up very much resources from our body. So if food is scarce, you don't have the luxury of doing the slow thinking that takes a lot of energy. You need to think fast. You need to be able to get the prey that you can eat. You don't really sit there and think about, about it. You don't, think, you don't uh, ask the big questions. But the trouble is, this fast thinking that we're wired to do makes great doubt very difficult. Because we live in a world that is primarily automatic reactions. So we don't live in a world that includes the slow thinking of great doubt, such as stopping, observing, and responding. No, we go stimulus response, stimulus response. This is, this is the way we're wired. So that's why we practice slow thinking on our meditation cushion. We're doing slow thinking. And it's why Zen practice can sometimes feel exhausting. It takes a lot of our effort to keep our heart and our mind open. We're actively turning off that unconscious path of reaction, which is fast thinking, and we're cultivating mindful concentration, which is slow thinking. So that's kind of the scientific -y stuff behind this. You know, because I, I really wanted to bring together here the ancient wisdom of the Zen path with the modern thinking that shows that, oh, these things are actually um, together. They're actually looking at the same thing, just using different metaphors to talk about them. But the bottom line here is that we really have to train ourselves not to just answer questions, but to question answers. It won't simply happen for us. And Zen is the training that we do. So when you find that you've answered a question, is it possible for you to continue to hold open your mind and question your answer? When you feel certain is it possible for you to retain your great doubt? Thich Nhat Hanh, in his uh, absolutely concise, beautiful, poetic way, 
said it this way. Whenever we have something come up, then we say, bah, 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 bah. Thich Nhat Hanh would say, are you sure? So uh, all these words that I offered you, uh, he could distill down into three. Are you sure? <laughs> that's why he's so good. So that's what I wanted to offer tonight was, uh, was the, um, the urge, the invitation to question your answers. So I'll end with the sound of the bell. <laughs>